0: This is the Spring Research Project podcast where we talk about community sponsorship of refugees. My name is Eliza Bateman and I am Head of Research at the University of Ottawa Refugee Hub.
1: And I'm Tiomir Sapchev, postdoctoral fellow at the Refugee Hub. Hello everyone, and welcome back to our Spring Research Project podcast. When we talk about the Canadian private sponsorship of refugees program, we often imagine how a group of ordinary Canadians comes together, usually motivated by their sense of social justice, and decides to help a refugee family to arrive in Canada and start a new life. And this has certainly been true on many occasions. We have heard countless stories about local church congregations, groups of neighbors, book clubs, universities, schools and businesses who have been sponsoring refugees in the last four decades. However, there is one category of refugee sponsors that rarely features in the public debate, in research and in training materials related to the PSR program. These invisible sponsors, as I would call them today, are often newcomers in Canada, who have left behind their family members, relatives, colleagues and friends. Because the PSR program allows sponsors to name the individuals they would like to resettle to Canada, these invisible sponsors can use the program to reunite with their loved ones. Although concrete statistics are missing, it is assumed that the majority of refugee sponsorships in Canada today are facilitated by these invisible sponsors. Their presence is particularly prominent in some diaspora communities including the Eritrean, the Ethiopian, and the Iraqi diaspora. Today, we would like to focus on the contribution of the invisible sponsors to the PSR program, the way their engagement shapes refugee sponsorship, and the way it may influence the future of the program in the years to come. As usual, we have invited some amazing guest speakers, and I will now pass it on to Eliza, who will introduce them to you.
0: Thanks, Tio um, and welcome, everyone. I'm thrilled today to be with two fantastic guests. Firstly, I'll introduce Sabine Lair. She is the Private Sponsorship of Refugees Manager at the Intercultural Association of Greater Victoria. She has served as Chair and Vice-Chair of the Council of the Canadian Refugee Sponsorship Agreement Holders Association. She has represented Canadian NGOs at the Annual Tripartite Consultations on Resettlement from 2017 to 2020. Through the Global Refugee Sponsorship Initiative and by invitation of the Canadian government, she's also worked with European countries in exploring community sponsorship schemes there. Sabine has authored book chapters on naming in the Canadian Refugee Sponsorship Program and on the implications of Canada's sponsorship program on the country's protection regime. Welcome Sabine. I'm also happy to have with us today Biftu Yusuf. Biftu is a PhD candidate at the Department of Geography, York University. She received her BA in Criminology and she holds a double masters in Criminology and Health from Simon Fraser University. Her dissertation uses feminist geopolitics to explore how racialized diasporas, made up of formerly resettled refugees, facilitate the resettlement of fellow exiles to Canada. This publicly funded project probes Canada's private sponsorship of refugees program and is titled Invisibilized Providers The Role of Racialized Diasporas in Refugee Sponsorship. BIFTU's other research interests include critical geographies of race and migration, African diaspora studies, and feminist methodologies. Welcome, BIFTU. It's wonderful to have you with us. I will start us off with some questions to our panelists um, today. And what I might do is throw a question to both of you and I'll ask Biff2 to to respond first, if that's okay. So the importance of family or other links, be it relatives, community, friendship links, and diaspora communities for sustaining the PSR program seems to be a fairly well-known trend to researchers and practitioners working in the field in Canada. However, it also seems that we've done relatively little study to understand this trend. So I'd like to ask you both, from your experience in research, what is the relationship between diaspora communities and the evolution of the PSR program? Over to you, Biftu.
2: Thank you so much for that introduction and for the invitation to join this discussion today. So in the 43 years since the private sponsorship program was implemented on a large scale, uh, which would have been in 1979, private citizens and civil society groups, and civil society groups primarily made up of um, faith-based organizations, have facilitated the uh, refugee resettlement Um in Canada by utilizing its unique PSR uh, pathway. So a set of lesser known stories um, in the history of refugee protection in Canada are those contributions and the efforts that have been undertaken by diaspora communities uh, existing within Canada. I just wanted to draw some examples here of um, the role of diaspora communities in like uh, largely um, in immigration in Canada by drawing on some examples from Michael Malloy who in his work explains how student advocacy led particularly by a group of Vietnamese pupils um, who were in Canada and particularly in Montreal in student status appearing on Parliament Hill in large numbers to protest their worries about relatives back home and this being cited as the event that got Canada's federal government interested in legalizing their support for resettling refugees. Similarly, after the Kamagata Maru incident, uh, so this would have been decades before, the South Asian diaspora in Canada put up a fierce decades-long challenge against Canada's discriminatory and exclusive policies which eventually led to the abolishment of anti-South Asian resettlement to the nation. And I draw on these examples particularly to show how, um, for a long time, diaspora groups have long played a significant role in mobilizing governments to participate in humanitarian projects such as the private sponsorship program. And there still remains, despite this, there remains a gap in the literature about their contributions in these projects. And so the stories and the roles of racialized diasporas and made up of particularly former refugees um, in initiating and executing refugee sponsorship is the focus of my research. Gaps in the scholarly literature on refugee resettlement became obvious to me back in 2018 during my first year of a research assistant position with Professor Jennifer Hyman's project on private refugee sponsorship in Canada. My responsibilities for this particular research um, as an assistant to the project was uh, to collect data, to manage the data, and to do the data analysis, or at least facilitate some of the data analysis. And through these engagements, I became oriented to the sponsor profiles that tended to saturate the uh, very sparse literature on private refugee sponsorship and of particular concern in my readings of this literature was the overrepresentation of sponsors who were predominantly white canadian-born semi-retired women with post-secondary education and relatively high incomes um, and had f- affiliated and were affiliated through faith to sponsorship while some sponsors with these backgrounds, uh, characteristics were new to sponsorship in this literature. Many, though, were also quite seasoned in the PSR program and had exerted great efforts uh, to keep the program sustained over the years. Um, and what I want to emphasize is that they, their contributions and their efforts just tell one part of the sponsorship story. But that the underrepresentation of sponsors in the literature from diverse demographic backgrounds could give this impression that those who are involved in sponsorship constitute a homogeneous group of non-diaspora sponsors Um, and so reading the literature i understood that a significant part of the sponsorship story was quite invisibilized i myself have grown up in a household and a racialized diaspora in Canada that was deeply affected by the impacts of forced migration and thereby a sense of obligation to sponsor family members and ethno-national kin who remain displaced and at risk. Research finds that these effective dimensions of family separation across distant geographical borders are taxing for resettled former refugees um, and is cited in some literature as the impetus for their participation in private refugee sponsorship. So extending protection to fellow exiles is an integral part of the lived experiences of racialized diaspora communities. And these stories remain um, under-explored and under-theorized in the literature. So I think for me, it raises this question when we're considering the role of diaspora communities and the evolution of the PSR program, it really concerns this question of who are sponsors, right? Are sponsors those who have formal sponsorship agreements with the government? Are they individuals or groups who partner with other sponsors in Canada who have these formal agreements and who are seasoned in the PSR program? And what about those who participate through ad hoc arrangements, either by naming individuals to sponsor, by filling out forms, donating funds or other material goods? by assisting with settlement and by taking up advocacy roles and who otherwise facilitate sponsorship in less direct and less formal ways. So depending on the entry points of analysis there's evidence to suggest that diaspora communities have been involved in sponsorship since they first started coming to Canada under the resettlement pathway of protection I would suggest that these demographics of the communities of these demographics of diaspora communities have likely shifted over time maybe beginning with more european diasporas to begin with who were involved and then as theo mentioned at the beginning we see those shifts now towards other types of diaspora communities and i also think the shifts occurred or have occurred too in terms of their involvement Uh, primarily maybe their involvement was a little less informal. And now we're starting to see these diaspora communities take up more formal roles and particularly um, in their involvement by applying and successfully becoming sponsorship agreement holders here in Canada.
0: Thanks so much, um, Biftu. It's really interesting. Um, And thank you particularly for that history there. Going right back to look at the role that diaspora communities have played in this Program and even pre the program been so deeply involved in the fabric of the program. It's really important. Sabine, I've, I'd love to hear from you on this with your expertise in the sponsorship community and your research background.
3: Yeah, so thank you, thanks Eliza and Tio for hosting me and having me part of this conversation today, and thanks Bifdu for starting us off on this question with a very detailed, you know, historical overview and a, an academic, um, you know, take on the question. So maybe what I'll do is uh, I'll take a bit of a different angle from my practitioner perspective, and in doing that, uh, I'm going to draw on some of the uh, data and the information that uh, is contained in a chapter that I co-authored with my colleague Brian Dick in a book called Strangers to Neighbors, Refugee Sponsorship in Context. And in this book um, that was uh, published a couple of years ago, Brian and I wrote a chapter on naming refugees in the Canadian private sponsorship um, of refugees program, diverse intentions and consequences, as we called that. And um, I'm mentioning this, this book chapter because the role of diaspora communities in sponsorship is very tightly linked to the ability by Canadian sponsors to select refugees or termed differently to refer those refugees to Canada for resettlement. And that has been a feature of the program since the 1976 Immigration Act, which enshrined, you know, the ability to sponsor in in Canadian legislation. Uh, It has become Known as the naming principle, it's kind of an informal term because it doesn't really exist in legislation. But that naming principle has become a, a core in a in a much cherished uh, principle in in Canada's refugee sponsorship program. And even though some of the uh, newer countries, or not newer countries, but newer programs in countries that allow for community or private sponsorship of refugees, um, are looking at that possibility of naming or sponsor referrals, the scope of this um, in a, in sponsors' ability to identify refugees for resettlement is really unparalleled, you know, in Canada and in comparison to the rest of the world, and so. I mean, who are these sponsors that refer refugees for resettlement? As, As our listeners can likely appreciate, most Canadians who were born and raised in this country do not know any refugees that they could possibly refer for resettlement. So it is really the relatives of these refugees in Canada's diaspora communities that are making the referrals. And in the absence of pathways to reunite with these displaced family members through other immigration programs, And notably here is the um, Canadian family class sponsorship program that has a much more narrow definition of family member and only allows certain um, family members, basically nuclear family members, and then to some extent parents and grandparents to come to Canada to reunite with their family. So in the absence of more of broader pathways, the refugee sponsorship program effectively serves now to reunite these members of the diaspora community with their relatives who live as refugees. And so in in other words, um, our refugee program has become a de facto family reunification tool, especially since uh, another important program was discontinued in 2002. That used to be the assisted relative class under which um, sponsors were able to bring relatives, including refugees to Canada outside of the regular family class sponsorship program, as long as those applicants also met economic um, admissibility, um, uh, admissions criteria. And as I said, that program was discontinued in 2002. Theo, you mentioned the term invisible sponsors before, and Biftu, you also referred to that. So I think we, we, we got to explore that a little bit more, because if we talk about invisible sponsors, we need to ask ourselves the question, invisible to whom? Because for me as a sponsorship um, practitioner, these so-called uh, family-linked sponsors are the most visible ones and generally outnumber the Canadians without any family connections to refugees that approach us for assistance with refugee sponsorship. And I think when we're talking about invisibility here, it's really about the, the lack of appearance of these sponsors in, in research data. And that's, of course, uh, a little bit surprising, given the size of this uh, part of the refugee sponsorship program. Specifically, we do not really know what percentage of all uh, sponsorships have family linkages. Tio mentioned in the introduction, it's probably the vast majority, and I agree with that. Uh, Estimates say around 90% of all sponsorships, but as I said, we don't really know that, but it's probably 90% or more. And, you know, our listeners may wonder why, why it is that this segment of sponsorships is so understudied, given its size. Um, personally, I think it's because these so-called family-linked sponsorships do not formally exist in legislation or policy. And so the government uh, of Canada does not make a distinction between these family-linked sponsorships and what we tend to call the sponsor, of the stranger. Again, this is these are all informal terms that do not exist in policy or in law. Um, and as a result, because there is no such difference made, a quantitative data cannot easily be collected um, on on these types. I would say diaspora-related sponsorship agreement holders are amongst the fastest growing segment here in Canada of the sponsorship agreement holder community. As more and more persons arrive in Canada from the same communities that they wish to sponsor, they form their own community associations and eventually apply to become sponsorship agreement holders to be able to sponsor larger numbers of refugees with the same ethnic background. And maybe final point on that from me uh, for now is that um, I did a quick review of the current sponsorship agreement holders in Canada. So currently there are 137 such organizations that have a framework agreement with the government of Canada. And about one third or so of them are organizations that have strong links to diaspora communities. And of course, although I do not know whether they exclusively sponsor refugees that are members of those same communities, it's likely safe to assume that the majority of their sponsorships would be for those refugees. Maybe I'll uh, leave it at this for now and uh, we can take it from here.
1: Thank you so much, Sabine, for this introduction. And I, perhaps I would like to return to Biftu just on the last point because I think that uh, the topic of diaspora communities and diaspora linked uh, sponsorship agreement holders is something that she has addressed in her research. I wanted to ask you, Biftu, would you like to comment uh, as well on this topic?
2: Yeah, sure, thanks. I- I think a lot of my thoughts probably and my findings to my work so far, at least preliminarily echo what Sabina has shared. I also had an opportunity to, over the last couple of years, to kind of trace um, uh, the sponsorship agreement list um, and try to do an analysis of who, which ones are obvious diaspora, uh, which ones have obvious diaspora links, just in terms of the naming of their, their sponsorship agreement. But what I also know to be true is that a couple of those communities have deliberately changed their names over the years as a way to kind of get away from that type of a naming practice and to implement a more inclusive model in their approach in terms of who they sponsor. And I will also say that. I have found so far too that it tends to be the case that when they are doing these, you know, we've heard lots of different terminology be being used. You know, single population, right? Ethno-national community, um, ethnic communities, and so the the list just kind of goes on. In my own research, I just refer to them as racialized diasporas to kind of cast a wide net, but even within that, I focus on specific um, subgroups of of those populations. But what I have found consistently so far across um, all of that data, is that they do tend to have a single focus, but um, within that they tend to you know, do a portion of what they would call like a humanitarian type of sponsorship. So they might work with other diaspora communities, other ethno-national communities and sponsor. So, you know, for example, I've I've interviewed individuals in the Ethiopian diaspora or in the Eritrean diaspora who primarily focus on those kinds of sponsorships or people that come from those type of communities but will also sponsor people that from, that are from Ye- from a yemen background or from a syrian background and a couple have even started to consider um, the b4 right so sponsoring through the b4 program but the main concern that's come up there is a feeling like they're underprepared to be able to take on those kinds of sponsorships so I think similar to a lot a lot of this is pretty similar to what Sabina has has just shared so but I think it raises important questions too about the role of nuancing all of this work right we can't I, I think prior to starting this work I was hearing a lot of you know when diasporas are involved they only are sponsoring other diaspora members and although that might be the case in for majority of the sponsorships that they do it's 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 not kind of a, a one-size-fit-all solution for all of them in, in that respect. So I'll leave it there.
1: Thank you very much, Biftu. Indeed, bringing some nuance in, in the dichotomies that we see being used in research or in practice in relation to the private sponsorship of refugees program is something that Eliza and I are trying to do in our research. And I have to say we've spoken to many cases of sponsored the stranger over the last months we also interviewed many cases where we had uh, family linked sponsorships people who sponsor their uh, relatives their cousins etc and two things i wanted to highlight that we noticed from these interviews one is that the challenges that sponsors faced in these cases of linked sponsorships are perhaps somehow particular and different than the challenges that uh, ordinary Canadians who sponsor would face. And this is one of the things I want to ask you to elaborate on. And the second challenge that we saw, not so much a challenge, but the second difference that we saw between sponsored the stranger and linked cases had to do with the refugee newcomers themselves and in the settlement of refugee newcomers so when we have a group of canadians which are based on their neighborhood congregation etc we saw um, a diverse group that could link perhaps newcomers to a broader opportunities in terms of labor market and things played out quite differently when we had a small group of uh, sponsors even one person in some cases reuniting and bringing over their family members so I wanted to ask you to elaborate on these two aspects, the challenges for racialized, as BIF2 would call them, sponsors, and perhaps the differences that are out there for the refugee newcomers. And perhaps we can start with Sabina this time.
3: Sure. Well, thank you very much. And I'm really glad that you're bringing up the issue of needing some nuance here, because that's an important uh, point I wanted to make. I call it like fluidity in sponsorships. So, you know, we sometimes talk about these things as if they were ideal types. So sponsorships that are entirely undertaken by family members, maybe supported by friends from the same ethnic community on the one hand. And then on the other hand, sponsorships where none of the sponsors have any relationship with the refugee. Um, that which we then would refer to as the sponsor of the stranger. The, the reality is that there's a lot of overlap and fluidity between these categories, and that's why I would categorize many sponsorships as being a mix or a blend of those types. Um, so maybe groups where one or two uh, people are family-linked sponsors and they team up with friends, with neighbors, with colleagues that have no direct link to the refugees. That is very much the reality of what i experience um, on a daily basis there's also sponsorships where the the lead sponsors know the refugees but not through a family linkage not through a kind of a blood kinship but maybe because of a professional linkage and you know the case of afghanistan right now comes to mind where there's actually many canadians who used to work there and they're trying to bring people to safety so um I would like to, in, in, in responding to your question to you, I'd like to highlight some findings from a report that was done a couple of years ago um, by a researcher um, uh, from Queen's University, Maria Kraus, and uh, this was the result of some research where the uh, Sponsorship Agreement Holders As- Association teamed up with Queen's University. It was partly funded by SA uh, association and partly by um, a program of MyTax. and uh, Maria's research um, is entitled Understanding the Evolving Nature of Refugee Sponsorship in Canada, a preliminary investigation into the rise of family linked sponsorships. And so it was a qualitative research uh, via semi-structured interviews um, undertaken in late 2019. It focused on Metro Vancouver, which of course is a major point of resettlement for refugees, both government assisted and privately sponsored. And initially there had been an online survey that was conducted not just in the Vancouver region, but also Ottawa and Kingston in Ontario. And there were um, 86 people that responded to that survey and it provided some rich insights into those different typologies of sponsors and then informed that interview process in Vancouver. And what what the research found was that um, family-linked sponsors presented greater advantages for the integration of the refugees along psychological dimensions than the non-related sponsors. Those, those sponsors, you know, the close um, relationships, uh, not surprisingly, offered um, bonding, social capital and lessened the experience of the newcomers um, in terms of not feeling, feeling so isolated because there was this linguistic and the, and the cultural um, bonding. The non-family-linked sponsors, on the other hand, tended to have greater access to resources and they were able to draw on extensive social and financial and human capital that aided the newcomers um, in successful, what was called in the research, more functional integration versus the psychological integration of the newcomers. So. One important finding coming out of this research was that um family linked sponsorships that included both types of sponsors provided the most effective integration supports so it was the most holistic um integration supports that were that were being provided there. I would also like to maybe highlight some insights from a project that we are currently undertaking here in my organization. It's a, it's a capacity project um, which is funded by Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada. And it focuses also on family-linked sponsors here on Vancouver Island. We carry it out in collaboration with the settlement agencies on the island. We had some initial community engagement sessions earlier in the year and have just uh, completed virtual and in-person training sessions in various locations with exclusively family-linked sponsors, so people that either are sponsoring or would like to sponsor um, people that are their relatives. And we found that uh, the family-linked sponsors really experienced some difficulties understanding this whole program, the PSR program, as a humanitarian protection program that has specific requirements by the government of Canada, like reporting, monitoring, and all of that. The, and that's because they they often see it more akin to family sponsorship in the family class, which of course has a much more narrow beneficiary profile, as I said earlier, and where those same kind of requirements do not apply and so one of the things that those family linked sponsors really struggled with was the fact that either the government or the sponsorship agreement holder organizations are obligated to kind of tightly follow these sponsorships for one year after arrival. And it's often perceived by those family-linked sponsors as some kind of an intrusive process, right, where where outsiders sort of snoop in, you know, on, on those family relationships. So, Yeah, uh, maybe final point from that research that uh, Maria Kraus undertook was that the family-linked sponsors, um, while you know, f- feeling that, that responsibility, the primary responsibility for helping their family members um, integrate into this new society when they arrive, they also can get very overburdened with that role as being the primary, the cultural, the linguistic translators, the main support structure. And that's often because they are... They are frequently themselves newcomers that are juggling multiple jobs that are still uh, in the process of uh, learning and upgrading their English. So it can be quite overwhelming for these uh, sponsors. Maybe I'll I'll leave it at that and see what Griftu has to add at this point.
2: Thank you. I think I can share some insights that are starting to emerge from my research. Um, my analysis is ongoing, so a lot of these comments are, are quite preliminary at the moment. But I think what I can share briefly is that uh, one thing that I've started to uncover, and I think this is also going to like echo what Savina has just shared from. Um, the research that's being done with your organization, but also from the study, from Maria's study, and that is that the motivations uh, for getting involved in sponsorship do tend to look different uh, for um, refugee uh, diaspora communities uh, compared to others. And so what I did here was, I mentioned Jennifer Hyman's study, so I have access to that data as well, and in that one, we didn't focus specifically on refugee diasporas, but that was a component of the target group for that research as well. But we had other sponsors, and, and particularly those that we've referred to in that project as um, you know, serial sponsors or son- sponsors that have been involved in the program for 10 years or longer. And so when I draw comparisons, I guess, between the two in terms of the sets of motivations, what I found is that with the diaspora communities, they, they are motivated. Um, to get involved in sponsorship primarily by concerns that they have from family members and ethno-national kin. But I think what's important to highlight here is that it's it's, I haven't seen so far that it's just under the the basis of them wanting to just be able to reunite uh, with family members that they've separated from. But in particular, it's those that have been left behind that are often unprotected and have been and remain right in these dangerous situations. So these people that they've been separated with, or separated from, be that um, extended family members or what I'm referring to as ethno-national kin, which is another concept that Jennifer and I, um, Professor Hyman and I, have been working on. To, to kind of expand as a way to capture those who might not have direct kinship ties but might share a common ethno-nationality. So I found that this, this is one of the primary motivations, at least of the participants in my research, for getting involved in sponsorship. And then I would argue too in my own work that maybe that those who have themselves been sponsored as refugees to canada could arguably be the most well-placed and effective sponsors and i think in particular this would concern the implementation of their settlement plan Um, i wanted to share a a quote from one participant who said um, one of the diaspora participants who said it's often the community that looks after resettled refugees and not just the individual uh, not an individual sponsor or a private group of sponsors, and I and I think what this emphasizes here, you know, similar to what Sabina just shared, is that the the reception, especially in terms of the kind of being welcomed into a community, whether it's like. Being able to overcome the the cultural shock, some of the linguistic backgrounds, being able to um, have direct connections to particular employment sectors, and there, so there's all of these links that they might have, but might be under resourced in different ways, right? So I am starting to see that kind of a distinction come up, but when and because the the participants that I've interviewed themselves were refugees. So they kind of have this dual, they have a very unique positionality. They're able to say, you know, well, as a sponsor, this is what I'm witnessing in terms of the refugees that we're able to bring here and what, what works really well being, being received, right, by this, not just an individual sponsor, but, but an entire community of people who look like them, who speak like them, who share, you know, similar, similar backgrounds to the this. Um, to the refugees that they bring that are here that they bring but then um, we ourselves came right and sometimes they've come under the guard pathway right so they bring in that perspective and are able to draw out some of those distinctions that looked really different for us or I landed in a community that was very unfamiliar to me and you know speaking of those like affective dimensions that came up in Maria's research about the psychological impacts right of that kind of separation of feeling isolated feeling removed and kind of distinct and 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 what that does to implicate right the resettlement process for for these refugees um i just wanted to also add um you know on the topic of nuance to that even though it is the case that these motivations are often distinct as in like you know i want to resettle my family or my ethno-national kin who are left behind in precarious conditions the people who are in canada who are compelled to sponsor might not share these same language cultural or even um, a shared nation right with the refugees that they support but many do develop kinship bonds through a shared political viewpoint that's based on human rights
0: so thank you both so much i have a question on this question of sponsor motivation but also how it connects to integration one of the things that We've been looking at in our program, in our project, and um, our project is tied to a broader kind of project in Europe. It's looking at newcomer integration and what works and sustainable practices. And so sort of with that background in mind, I'd, I'd love to hear from you both on what do you think future programs, or if you were designing this program anew, Would you involve um, ethno-cultural, racialized diaspora? I I realize that, and thank you, Biff, too, sometimes we're dealing with different groups of people and we need to be sensitive to that. But if I can use kind of a catch-all for people who might have been refugees and then become part of sponsored communities, how should we include them? What should this look like going forward? Would you make any changes or do you think things are working well?
3: Yeah, so thanks for that question. I think that that diaspora communities, so the people that are emerging as increasingly being the drivers of sponsorship here in Canada, would need to be much more intentionally involved in the shaping of a sponsorship program. I mean, if we look back at the Canadian experience, like BIFTU has outlined, you know, the history of it, in the early days, in the late 70s, there were some large um, faith-based organizations, most Christian at the time that uh, basically drove the program and of course you know there were there was some involvement from diaspora communities that were attached to these organizations but by and large you know they weren't they weren't the ones that were in the driving seat they weren't the ones that were very intentionally uh, incorporated into the the emerging design of that program and so I think um, as we're looking at the trend right now, this is going to continue. Uh, there, There isn't enough capacity currently in existing sponsorship procurement holders to assist everyone who seeks help. And the, so newer uh, you know, communities um, that have arrived in Canada in the, more recently in the last decade or so, if you look at the Syrians, for example, right? We are seeing that already happening, that they start forming their own organizations and they start uh, you know, trying to assist their own fellow country people. And Brian and I, in our book chapter, you know, in "Strangers to Neighbors," we made that argument in regard to other countries with younger community sponsorship programs we we know that that a key question for those countries will be in the design of their new programs as to whether they will allow sponsors to name the refugees they wish to sponsor which then obviously would immediately mean you know are we getting diaspora communities involved in those kinds of um decisions and and so countries really need to decide on the principal objectives of their new community sponsorship programs are those programs supposed to, at least in part, provide established immigrant refugee communities with a mechanism to assist um, displaced extended family members? Or, or you know, like Biftu was saying, even if they're not family members, but sort of um, ethno-nationals uh, to which they, they feel a kinship? Or are these programs supposed to just provide referral agencies like the UN Refugee Agency with an additional mechanism beyond state-led resettlement to find doable solutions for those that have been assessed as being most in need of resettlement. So, you know, countries need to decide on these things. And we we also say in our chapter, Brian and I, that um, this becomes a question of how sustainable are these programs? Because it is, you know, these vested interests that the diaspora communities have in sponsorship that is actually sustaining the program at such a high level here in Canada. uh, Because there's only so much altruism in the population to engage in such a very, you know, heavily committed program like a sponsorship program that demands, you know, financial inputs, that demands uh, human resource inputs that go way beyond a regular volunteer experience. And so, you know, to make that um, a long-term um, and sustainable program in in the in the newer uh, in the newer community sponsorship uh, circles, um, we Brian and I felt, you know, that uh, it's uh, absolutely inconceivable to get to this without allowing some level of um, involvement by by uh, those communities that have a vested interest in sponsorship. So. You know, sometimes this gets framed as the sponsor referred models versus models based solely on so-called objective humanitarian assessments and referrals, as as if those were mutually exclusive um, sort of dimensions of sponsorship. And um, I think I want to say that just because refugees are referred by sponsors who happen to be family members does not mean that they are not meeting humanitarian criteria for resettlement. Humanitarian vulnerability assessments have have been contested for a long time. And uh, secondly, and recognizing that all resettled refugees are ultimately found to be in need of protection by the state that makes a final decision on granting them a visa. We we must not ignore the role of family reunification for the integration of those refugees in their host societies. And that, of course, has also been recognized by the UN Refugee Agency. And that's why I would say that um, whichever route countries with newer sponsorship programs take that have still the ability to design um, those programs in a more intentional way as might have been the case here in canada the pressure for naming and the pressure from the resettled refugees that have come first and who form those new diaspora communities will very quickly become a reality, and we have heard that already from colleagues um, in various European countries. We've heard that from the colleagues in the UK. You know that that started one of the first um, of the first programs um, over in in Europe. So that is something that will become a reality, and that states will need to grapple with if they want to make their program sustainable. Yeah, I'll leave it at that.
0: Thank you very much, Sabina. Bitu, did you want to come in on that
2: point? I think what I could share is that, uh, you know, I've grappled with this question a lot in, in my research and especially in tracing back the the history and the evolution of the program and thinking about the, the key voices, right, that were involved in shaping Um, helping to kind of implement the design of the of the initial program and the voices that were missing right as part of that process and kind of the evolution that it's gone through with all the shifts and changes policy wise but then also just changes that have happened under the radar right so this a lot of the a lot of the shifts at least that I've documented in this work too is stuff that's happening procedural changes small modifications changes to details and I don't think the impl- the implications of these changes, of these developments, look the same across the different groups. That that's what I've started to find, and I've been thinking through a lot of this around the the challenges, right? that refugee the refugee communities, um, that diaspora communities experience in in implementing sponsorship, and so. Um, I'll probably dedicate an entire chapter just looking at those challenges because there's so many that have been highlighted and a lot of that I think if we're not bringing a racialized lens to understanding these issues then you know we have to ask these questions and so for me I, I, would, I, would, I, would, I would respond by saying you know anytime that there's key voices that are missing from a design of a program. Um, and key voices, as in people, um, you know, with the with the diaspora communities who have, you know, very unique positionalities and probably can offer very unique contributions, right? how could the policies look different? How could this program look different? And we don't know. We haven't really explored that. I know that there's some work that's being done with the SAW SA Association and the SAW Council to improve the inclusivity, right, of uh, diaspora communities and particularly racialized individuals at giving them a share at the, at the table. So I know that there are some of these trends that, that are starting to take up. But I, I do think that it could look like a very, when I think I, you know, I can't, I don't want to speak right now too early on about those findings or how I want to kind of present that information around the challenges, but it's even just small things like I interviewed somebody this past week and um, his work, he's done a lot of G5 and even under the notion of G5 sponsorship, so that's Group of 5 sponsorship for the listeners who aren't aware of what that stands for. But. Um, he, and a serial G5 sponsor, so he has, you know, come together with multiple different groups and has done a lot of G5 work, and one of the things that was brought up in that interview was, you know, one of the things that's, I, I know it's an impact for all kinds of sponsorship is the processing time, but he's like, it's particularly challenging for the G5s because these groups, you know, if it's taking three, four, five years um, to, com- to complete a sponsorship, and he came himself as a refugee, and I think he told me his process was eight months, right? So through saw he came in eight months, and so it's like the process has been delayed, you know, COVID, all of these conditions that were kind of unforeseeable and out of control. Um, The concern there was with the processing time, there's all these dynamics, the group dynamic shifts, people fall off, they end up having children. The financial requirement was the big piece of it, right? Um, And so when now the group dynamic is starting to shift. Maybe, you know, they're getting married off, they're having children, the family size change. So the financial piece starts to really shift. And so the longer that takes, the more implications that has for that group dynamic. And then I started to wonder, well, who are group of five sponsors, right? And the there isn't, you know, quantitative data, at least that's publicly available to tell us what that looks like. But I, I would say everyone that I've talked to, there's this you know, strong emphasis that it tends to be racialized, you know, so diasporas, and it tends to be diasporas who are primarily, right, driving that part of the program. And it's not an insignificant part of the program. It makes up more than 50% of the, 50. I think it's 50, is it 51% of the applications, right, that are in process. So what does that mean, right, for sponsorship and who's doing that kind of work and what kind of implications does that have? And the financialization piece, I will say primarily what I'll probably focus on writing is the program integrity framework, the challenges around, again, the financialization, how groups are able to, the capacity, right, of groups. So you can't put a faith-based organization that's been around since the beginning in a formal way, been around since the beginning of the program, and say compare them to a brand new you know organization that even just comparing their 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 human capacity to be able to have volunteers paid staff members whether that's full-time or, or part-time versus not right where um i some one participant was referring to it as like we do basement sponsorship right we're basically working in like offshoot hours as, as best as we can to kind of and it's constant work so you know i i think that even in trying to understand like the the implications that it has across the, the the diversities of these groups their organizational capacity what they lack or or what they can contribute in terms of resources looks really different again back to this question of nuance right it's really important to nuance it and i think if the the policies and the shifts that are happening in the institution of the program are not including these voices we are missing a lot. Lar- and then to say that they make up probably a majority of what of the contribution and the efforts that's um, to un- in undertaking the sponsorship program. So I think there's a lot of work um, that can be done and that can really shift the landscapes of the sponsorship program here in Canada.
1: Biftu Sabina, I want to thank you so much for your contribution today and for all the insights that you shared with our listeners. I want to say that it is, of course, an endless topic, but I think that we somehow managed to bring these invisible sponsors to the fore today and to shed light on their contribution to the PSR program, which is very important. I would like to encourage our listeners to follow Sabine and her project in British Columbia. She is helping diaspora communities to facilitate uh, sponsorships through the programme and of course the research of uh, BIF2 at York University and we are also looking forward for your publications to learn more about the role of diaspora communities and of course our, let's finish with our contribution through the spring project that will also address this topic.